Well, let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer, and then we're going to begin the study today of an altogether new book of the Bible. Uh, we've just finished our study of Matthew, and we're going to begin today with a study of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. But let's ask the Lord's blessing and His presence with us as we begin this new study. Lord, teach Thy people to love Thy house best of all dwellings, Thy scriptures best of all books, Thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore Thy glory. Help us to keep always Thy day, the first of days, holy unto Thee, our Maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up, if you will, to Paul's epistle to the Philippians. This is a short letter, one of the reasons we're going to study. We're going to talk about the reasons we're studying it. It's not the only reason by any means, but one of the reasons we can study Philippians, uh, because we're in the second semester, it's a relatively brief book. It's only four chapters. And yet it is a book that is packed full of really gems when it comes to spiritual matters. And so um, it's a great book for us to study. And as we're going to see in just a moment, it's a great book for us to study at this particular point uh, in our lives and in the history of the world. But what I want to do today is just read the first two verses of Philippians. That's all we're going to get through today, I suspect, is just this introduction. But even here in the introduction, words that many people just gloss over, thinking they need to get onto the meat of the book. There is a great deal uh, that is meant to teach us here and to encourage us. So verses 1 and 2, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the reasons why uh, we want to study Paul's epistle to the Philippians is because this is an apostolic book. People ask, well, why did you choose Philippians? You just choose the books that you like to study. Uh, what is your favorite book of the Bible? Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great English preacher in London uh, in the years following World War II, said that for preachers, your favorite book ought always to be the book that you're studying at any particular time. So right now, Philippians is going to be my favorite book, um, but I have other books that I love equally, um, but we're going to study Philippians, and it's a great book, and we're going to study it because, as I said, it is written by the Apostle Paul, and Paul was an apostle, and ours is an apostolic faith. Uh, this is something we can never forget. We say it every Sunday, at least we give lip service to it when we stand and we profess our faith in the words of the apostles or the Nicene Creed. We say we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Uh, that's our way of saying that the faith that we hold as Christians is built upon the witness of the apostles. And we believe that the apostles were divinely inspired. And because they were divinely inspired, the words that they produced were the words of God himself. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that Paul is not the, the writer of this book, but we might say that God the Holy Spirit so superintended the process that while Paul is the writer, God the Holy Spirit is actually the author. So it's an important book for us because it's Holy Scripture. Even Peter, in his second epistle, describes the writings of Paul. He says, the writings of Paul can be difficult, and he said there are people who would seek to distort the writings of Paul, but he nevertheless refers to the writings of Paul as Scripture. And all Scripture is written for our benefit, for correction, for training, for reproof, that we may be men and women who are equipped for righteous living. And so, Overall, that's the real reason why we study Paul's uh, letter to the Philippians, not simply because it's a short letter and we can get through it, but because it's Holy Scripture. It's divinely inspired, and it is meant for our benefit, for our encouragement, and to train us to be men and women who can be great followers of Jesus Christ. But there is a second reason why I wanted us to study this book in particular, and that is because of all of Paul's letters, this is perhaps the most joyful and in fact, some scholars have referred to Philippians as Paul's ode to joy. He speaks of joyful living or happiness no less than 16 times in four chapters. 
Now, when you consider the fact that the book is only four chapters long, on average, Paul is referring to joyful living no less than four times a chapter. So really, that is the theme of this book. It, it is joy. And when I say joy, I'm really making a distinction between joy and happiness. Um, when we think of happiness today, we have a tendency to think of uh, that feeling of euphoria that we have when things are going our way. Uh, we are happy when we win the lottery, or we're happy when our, our children are all getting along. But happiness is something that, as I said, is contingent upon your circumstances. And if your circumstances change, well, your happiness will change. You can become unhappy at that point. But in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul speaks of joy, he's really talking about something different from what we understand happiness to be. A joy is something that you can experience regardless of your circumstances. The whole world can be falling apart around you, and you can nevertheless continue to have joy. You may not be particularly happy, but you can nevertheless find joy. And I think that this is an appropriate subject for us, especially in the midst of this pandemic. So many people are unhappy and discouraged and even despondent. And if there's anything that we need, we need to be able to rediscover joy. As Christians, we of all people should be joyful. This is one of the, the real gifts of God the Holy Spirit when he makes people to be joyful. When Christians are not joyful, it is a terrible witness. It makes it impossible for us to attract others to the faith. So this is a particularly joyful letter. And when you consider Paul's circumstances, that is all the more astounding. Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, to the church in Philippi, when he was actually in prison in Rome. Now, this is the imprisonment that is described in the last chapter of the book of Acts. It was an imprisonment that took place sometime around the year 61 AD. You may recall that Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem, and because he was a Roman citizen, he had been transported to the Roman seat of government in that province, which was at Caesarea Maritima. Some of you who've been to the Holy Land, you've actually been there to Caesarea Maritima. That's Caesarea by the sea. And Paul was held there as a prisoner for about two years. He stood trial under two Roman governors. And when it appeared that he was not getting anywhere, he exercised his right as a Roman citizen and appealed to Caesar. That was the right of everyone who was actually a Roman citizen. Now, not everybody was a Roman citizen. Everybody in that part of the world, of course, was a subject of the Roman Empire, but a citizen of the Roman Empire was a completely different status. It was a privileged status, and Paul was a Roman citizen. His parents before him had been Roman citizens, so he inherited this, and it was the right of a Roman citizen when they didn't feel they were getting a fair trial to actually appeal to stand trial before the emperor himself. And ultimately, that is exactly what Paul did. He appealed to Caesar, and we're told that he was sent off to Rome. And that is the imprisonment that is described in the latter part of the book of Acts. It was a house imprisonment. Uh, most scholars do not believe that this was the final imprisonment that the Apostle Paul endured when he was locked away in that rat-infested pit called the Mamertine Jail, that imprisonment that ultimately preceded his martyrdom. Uh, this was a previous uh, incarceration. Eventually, we believe that Paul was released and traveled for some time, maybe for two or three more years before he was ultimately arrested, brought back to Rome, and executed on the Ostian Way outside of Rome. So this was a previous um, incarceration. It was a house arrest. Paul did have some liberty. He did have some freedom, but he couldn't go far. It's appropriate because that's the way many of us feel right now as a result of this pandemic. We feel as though we're under house arrest. Uh, we have some freedom, we have some liberty, but there are many things that we simply cannot do. So this is a timely letter for us. And yet, as I said, in spite of all of the circumstances, in spite of the fact that Paul, who had been free to travel the world, is now restricted, he nevertheless has great joy. He speaks, for example, in chapter 4 of being content. He said, I have learned the secret to being content in every situation. He said, I've been well-fed, I've been hungry, I've had plenty, I've been in want. 
He said, but I have found the secret to being content in all circumstances. I think that is something that we, as Americans living in the 21st century, really need to recover. Because we have more than really any previous generation in history. We have all of the creature comforts, and yet we are a people who are anything but content. Paul had known plenty, he had known want, but he had learned the secret to being content. What's the secret to being content? What was it that Paul discovered that seems to be so elusive today? Well, Paul would probably tell you that what he had discovered was the mind of Christ. He had learned how to think with the mind of Christ. And that's what we want to do as we study this epistle to the Philippians. We want to discover for ourselves the mind of Christ. Some years ago, you remember that there was um, a movement, the WWJD movement. You would see WWJD on little bracelets, WWJD monogrammed on sweatshirts or on hats. And those four initials meant, what would Jesus do? And the idea here was that if you're in a situation, you need to pause and you need to ask yourself, what would Jesus do? I never particularly liked that. I thought it was a little trite, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, the idea is not necessarily bad, but sometimes when we commercialize Christianity, we cheapen it. And furthermore, I never thought that it was appropriate for us to have to stop and ask, what would Jesus do? Because if we're Christians, what that means is that Christ dwells within us. He so controls our minds, our thoughts, our hearts, that we don't have to ask, what would Jesus do? We know instinctively what Jesus would do. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we always do it, but it does mean that we know what we should do. If we are united to Christ, and that really is the essence of true biblical salvation, to be united with Christ, that He dwells in us and we in Him, if that is really the case in our lives, then we will know instinctively what Jesus would do. And Paul said, when you get to that point, you suddenly learn the secret of being content, because Jesus himself was perhaps the most content person to have ever lived. I think this is one of the things that attracted people so much to Jesus. It was his serenity, that, that sense of peace that he had, that all was well no matter what. So that's the reason why we want to study this little letter to the Philippians. Yes, it's a short letter, and we can get through it much faster than it took us to get through the Gospel of Matthew. Yes, it is an apostolic book. It is divinely inspired, and it is profitable for us, but it is a joyful letter. And if we need anything in these days, we need joy. We need to discover for ourselves the secret of contentment. Now, Paul, of course, is writing this letter to a particular church, to a particular congregation. Uh, most of the time, that's what Paul did when he wrote his epistles. Not all of the epistles in the New Testaments are written specifically to a church. Some of them are what are known as general or Catholic epistles. They're written to Christians in all places and in all times. But most of Paul's epistles, you will discover, were written to specific churches for specific purposes. They were action grams, if you will. And that is the case with Philippians. Now, Paul sometimes wrote letters to churches that he had not established, with whom he did not have a strong relationship. That was actually the case with the, the most famous of all Paul's letters. The epistle to the Romans was written to a church that Paul had not founded or established. Actually, he had no part whatsoever in the founding of the church in Rome. It had been started by others, and it had been in existence for some time by the time Paul actually visited Rome and by the time that Paul actually wrote his epistle to the Romans. But most of the time, most of the time, Paul was writing to churches that he knew, and that was certainly the case with the church in Philippi. Paul knew this church well. He had established it, along with others, on his second missionary journey, which took place sometime between the years 49 to 52 AD. It was a journey that he made with two other men that we know of, at least. Um, Paul traveled with Silas, and he traveled with a young man that they picked up along the way by the name of Timothy. And of course, Timothy becomes very prominent in the New Testament. It becomes Paul's right-hand man. In fact, Paul's going to write two epistles that we know of, to Timothy specifically, these pastoral epistles, and Timothy is going to be Paul's heir 
in terms of the evangelistic ministry. So Paul is writing to a church that he established on his second missionary journey. Now, let me just refresh your memory as to what that second missionary journey was like, because I think it's really important to understand. For those of you who like maps, here's a map on the screen. Uh, Paul made three or four missionary journeys, depending upon who's counting. This was the second great missionary journey, and it was significantly more involved than the first missionary journey. Um, both of the first and second missionary journeys started off on the right-hand side of your screen in a place called Antioch. This was Antioch in Syria. Antioch was a major city in the ancient world, and there was a church that had been established there following a series of persecutions in Jerusalem and elsewhere. Um, persecutions, incidentally, that Paul had been instrumental in. You'll recall that the first Christian martyr was Stephen, and Paul had whipped the people into a frenzy, and they had stoned Stephen, the very first Christian martyr. And we're told that a great persecution erupted in the city of Jerusalem, and many of the Christians fled from Jerusalem and from other places. And one of the places they went to was Antioch, and a church was established there. Well, some years later, after Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, lo and behold, this is God's sense of humor. He was called back to this church, a church that had started as a result of his persecution. Paul is called back there to be one of its ministers. And it's there in that church in Antioch, which was an extraordinary church. You can read about it in Acts chapter 13. There in that church in Antioch, we're told God the Holy Spirit spoke to the congregation and told the people to set aside missionaries, Paul and Barnabas to go and preach the gospel to areas that had never heard the good news. Now, this was the first time, really, that the church was ever proactive in sharing the faith. Up to this point, the Christians shared the faith as opportunities presented themselves. But this was really the beginning of what we would call the missionary era, the church actually being proactive, targeting areas that had never heard the gospel, and sending out missionaries. And the first missionary sent out were these two men, Paul and Barnabas. On this first missionary journey, Barnabas was actually the senior partner. Paul was the junior partner. Now, you'll see that change as the missionary journey goes on, but initially, at least, Barnabas is the senior partner. On that first missionary journey, it was a relatively brief journey, uh, traveled over a, a relatively small area of land. From Antioch, there on the right-hand side of your screen, we're told that Paul and Barnabas traveled down the coast and they took a boat over to Cyprus, the Isle of Cyprus, landing at Salamis. Cyprus was actually Barnabas's home, and they preached the gospel there on Cyprus, faced some opposition. They actually had another traveling companion with them, a man by the name of Mark, John Mark. He was a nephew of Barnabas. And once they had finished there on Cyprus, they traveled up to Lystra, to Antioch, to Iconium, to Derby, all of those places. Now, after having faced opposition on the Isle of Cyprus, we're told that John Mark had decided to abandon the journey. And so he went back, presumably to Antioch or to Jerusalem, but the point is that he, he abandoned the journey. Meanwhile, Paul and Barnabas, as I said, left Cyprus, went back to the continent, went to Pisidian Antioch. That's another Antioch. You see it up there in the province of Galatia, Pisidian Antioch. Then they traveled over to Iconium, to Lystra, and to Derbe. And then, having finished that, they went back, they retraced their steps, and returned to the church in Antioch, Antioch in Syria, reported to the church all that had taken place. After that, they were summoned to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is down there to the south. They were summoned to Jerusalem, where they were expected to give an account of the ministry that they had had among the Gentiles. And that was the scene of the first church council. It's described in the book of Acts. There was a bit of a tension between Jewish believers and Gentile believers, and Paul and Barnabas were called there to give testimony. And then after the first church council, we're told they went back to Antioch in Syria, and Paul came up with the idea of going back to the cities where they had just preached and visiting the brethren. So they were going to go back to those cities, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and encourage those who had heard the gospel and had received it. 
And Barnabas agrees to this. But, and this is interesting, at this point, Barnabas says, I'd like to take John Mark along with me. Now, remember, this is the same John Mark who had deserted them earlier on. And Paul presumably says, no. Uh, We're not going to let John Mark go with us. He abandoned us. Apparently to Paul, that was a form of desertion, and uh, he was not going to have John Mark along the journey. Apparently, they had a, a great disagreement about this. Barnabas insisted that John Mark was a young man and, you know, made a mistake perhaps, but he could still be useful. And Paul said, no, no, this is, this is rough work. You've got to be tenacious. You, you can't be a quitter. And apparently, and you read this in the Greek, it's particularly true. The English version has a tendency to water it down. But in the Greek, these two men had a real difference of opinion about John Mark to such a degree that they actually parted ways. And Barnabas would take John Mark, travel down to Cyprus, and continue a Christian ministry there. Paul would take along this other traveling companion by the name of Silas, and he would go off on a second missionary journey. Now, it's, it's tragic that these two great men, Paul and Barnabas, who had done so much good together, were parting ways. But there is a sense in which God was using that to nevertheless spread the Christian gospel. And as we find out later on in the New Testament, Paul and John Mark ultimately are reconciled. And Paul even praises John Mark for his efforts for the gospel. So all things work together for good in the end. But what it means is that Paul is now traveling with a new companion, and he's going off in a new direction. He travels from Antioch up to Tarsus. You can see it up there. That was his hometown. He travels over to Derby to visit these same churches that he had established on the first missionary journey with Barnabas. He goes to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch, and then it is his desire to travel up to the north into the Roman province of Bithynia. But the scripture says that he was prevented from doing so. The Holy Spirit prevented him from doing so. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but for whatever reason, Paul could not go into Bithynia. So then it's his desire, if he can't go north, to go south. He wants to travel down to one of the great cities of the ancient world, and that is Ephesus. But again, we're told he was prevented from doing so. He was prevented by God, the Holy Spirit, from going to the south. So he couldn't go to the north. He couldn't go to the south. There was no need to go to the east. He'd already been through those places. So the only thing Paul could do was press on with Silas to the west, and that's exactly what they did until they arrived at Troas, which was along the coast. And at that point, they had to make a decision. Where are they going to go from here? You can see it's basically a dead end. And we're told in the book of Acts that at that point, Paul had a vision. And the vision was of a man dressed in Macedonian garb who said, come over and help us. And Paul took that as a sign. And so he and Silas boarded a boat. They traveled across the Hellespont and they landed at Neapolis. And that was the beginning of Paul's missionary work in Europe. So this is a whole new continent. We've got a whole new set of missionaries. We've got a whole new vision for the work. And Paul travels from Neapolis down to Philippi. So that's where we intersect with our study of the book of Philippians. Paul goes to Philippi. Now, Philippi was one of the major cities of that portion of the Roman Empire. Very important place. Paul starts off in a rocky way, however. This was the Roman province of Macedonia. Philippi was not the capital of Macedonia. Thessalonica was actually the capital of Macedonia, but this was the leading city. Uh, For South Carolinians, uh, this would be like Charleston as opposed to Columbia. Columbia may be the capital of the state, but Charleston is a larger city and some would say a more influential city. It's a port city, for example. And that's the way it was for Philippi. Philippi was not the capital, but Philippi was the leading city of the province. It was located on what was known as the Ignatian Way, 
This was a major east-west trade route for the Roman Empire. So this major thoroughfare went right through the city. Those of you who've been with me to Greece, you've actually been to Philippi. You've actually walked a portion of the Ignatian Way. So this was a, a major city in the ancient world. And here's where we begin to see Paul developing a strategy for mission work. At this point, we're going to begin to see Paul focus his attention primarily, not exclusively, but primarily on major metropolitan areas. Now, up to this point, he hadn't done that. When he had gone through the province of Galatia and gone to Antioch, Pisidian, Antioch, that is, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, those were minor cities. Now Paul is going to begin with Philippians to focus on the great metropolitan areas of the ancient world. And those of you who've been with me through the book of Acts know that I believe that this was Paul's intent to take the gospel to the major metropolitan areas, because if you can establish a Christian presence in the cities where everything comes and goes, it's not long before the gospel itself is coming and going. So this is the beginning of the fulfillment of that missionary strategy. I think it's one of the things that churches need to do. They need to be intentional. They need to be strategic. Sometimes churches are very busy, but not particularly productive. And Paul was not interested in that. So he lands in Philippi, and he encounters, it's described in the book of Acts chapter 16, three people. The first thing that Paul does when he arrives in Philippi is he goes looking for a synagogue. This was normally a part of his strategy. He wanted to take the gospel to the cities, but the question is, where do you begin to preach the gospel in the cities? Paul's way of doing this was to find a synagogue and go into the synagogue because there at least you had people who were interested in spiritual matters. There were people who at least had a cursory knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, and he could begin with the Old Testament scriptures to begin to preach the gospel. I mean, take a look at Isaiah chapter 50, 53, the story of the suffering servant. That's a wonderful place to begin to tell the story of Jesus Christ and what he had come to do. So that was Paul's way of operating. But when he gets to Philippi, what he discovers in this leading city of the Roman province of Macedonia is that there is no synagogue. This is the first place Paul has been where there's no synagogue. Now, it only took a handful of Jewish men in order for a synagogue to be formed, but apparently there were so few Jews in Philippi that there wasn't even a synagogue there. Philippi was a city that had been established by order of the Roman emperor himself, and it was settled by former soldiers of the Roman army. It was an independent Roman colony. It had a, a special privileged status in the eyes of the emperor. They had limited taxation, for example. And because they were this special province, because they had been settled by soldiers who had served faithfully in the service of the empire, they really prided themselves on their association with Rome. They dressed like the citizens of Rome. They patterned all of their laws, even their local laws, after larger laws within the Roman Empire. They were very proud of their association with the empire. And this was a center in Philippi, for example, of emperor worship. So there was a cult of emperor worship in those days where the emperor was viewed as a demigod, and this was one of the centers for that emperor worship. So when Paul gets there, what he finds is a city that is very proud of its association with Rome. These are very patriotic people, and furthermore, they are people who are, for the most part, pagan, worshiping the gods of Rome, even worshiping the emperor. There's not even a Jewish synagogue in the place. And so where is he going to begin his ministry? Well, the story goes that he had heard that there were a few women who would gather down by the river and say their prayers. And he went down there by the river to encounter these women and he shared the gospel with them, and we're told that the first person on the European continent to be converted to the Christian faith was a woman named Lydia, who was a dealer in purple cloth. So she must have had her own business. Apparently, she was quite successful. Purple cloth was a very precious thing in the ancient world, and Paul preached the gospel to her. I've always thought it very interesting 
Here's Paul. He has this vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And when he arrives in Macedonia, the first person that is converted is not a man, but a woman. So maybe the man from Macedonia was actually a woman from Macedonia. But at any rate, Lydia is converted. So it's a difficult start here in Philippi. This, this is a different kind of place from every other place Paul had been. But it only becomes more difficult because Paul is determined to establish a Christian presence there. Preaching the gospel once and moving on is not going to be enough. He has to strengthen these women who don't know anything about the Christian faith or really about Jesus. So he's going to spend some time there in Philippi, strengthening them and encouraging them. And we're told, and again, you can read all of this in Acts chapter 16, but it's good background for you to have as we begin our study of the Philippian letter. Paul, we're told, is on one day as he was traveling down to the river to meet Lydia and the others, encountered a slave girl who was possessed with a spirit of divination. That's the way the, the um, English versions put it, or she was demon-possessed. And the story goes that she made a great deal of money for her owners by telling the future. Now, this seems rather bizarre to us, but you have to understand that it was not bizarre in the ancient world. This sort of thing was very common. And by the way, it's not uncommon from time to time to see people who read tarot cards or get involved in the occult and so forth. Well, this sort of thing was commonplace in the ancient world, even more so than it was today. And Paul, we're told, was accosted by this girl. And here's what's interesting. She begins to shout at Paul and Silas, and what she shouts is this, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to show you the way to be saved. Now, what she was saying was absolutely true, and the text says that she kept this up for several days. Now, this is one of the things that we see in the New Testament, that very often the demons, forces, spiritual forces of evil, are the first ones to recognize Jesus Christ and they are the first ones to recognize the followers of Jesus Christ. And that's what this girl was shouting. These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to show you the way of salvation. Now, all of that was true. Paul and Silas were servants of the Most High God, and they had come to show the people of Philippi the way to be saved. But let's be honest, if you're looking for a character witness, a demon-possessed slave girl is probably not what you want. And so after some time, we're told that Paul turned around and rebuked the spirit that was within the girl, and it left her, which was good news for her, not good news for her masters who made money off of her. And so they dragged Paul and Silas before the magistrates, and this is the charge that they bring. These men are from off. These men are from another place. They're foreigners. They're Jews. They're not like us. They're not loyal Romans, and they are advocating customs that are not lawful for us Romans to practice. And remember, this is a patriotic city. These are former soldiers of the Roman army, and these people are advocating customs not lawful for Romans to practice. That is a serious charge. And we're told that as a consequence, Paul and Silas are thrown into jail. Now, let me just add a, a little aside here about this slave girl. This is not just about Paul rebuking a slave girl. What this really is, is a contest between the God of Paul and Silas, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and these pagan deities. Now, that is not apparent when you read the English text, but it is particularly apparent when you read the Greek text. As I said, in the English text, it says that this girl was possessed of a spirit of divination, or she was demon-possessed. In the Greek, what the text actually says was that she was possessed of the spirit of Pythona. Now, what that means is the spirit of the snake, the python. Now, what's that all about? Well, not far from Philippi in the first century, there was a huge temple to the god Apollo. And Apollo was the god who was associated with the snake. 
Now, there are all kinds of stories associated with it. Some stories say that Apollo transformed himself into a snake. Others say that he killed a great snake, threw it down into the crevice, and it was the vapors from the decaying snake corpse that, that wafted up through the crevices and allowed mediums to foretell the future. All kinds of bizarre stories. But the point is that not far from where Paul was standing, there was a temple to the Pythian Apollo. And so the belief was that this slave girl was possessed of this pagan god, and that's how she was able to foretell the future. And so when Paul cast the demon out, it's his god triumphing, you see, over the gods of the Philippians, the Roman gods. And there's the rub. There's the rub. And so Paul and Silas find themselves thrown into jail. And the charges brought against them are serious charges, basically sedition, advocating customs not lawful for Romans to practice. He's working against the emperor. Now, there's a very good chance that on the morrow, Paul is going to be beheaded, that he's going to be executed. And yet what we find is that while Paul and Silas are there, locked away in this jail, in fetters, we're told what they were doing was praying and singing. Now, if you and I were in that kind of a situation, we would certainly be praying. But how many of us would actually be singing? Singing is a sign of joy. It's a sign of confidence. It's a sign of hopefulness. And I don't think Paul was singing, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, nobody knows but Jesus. I think he was singing hymns of praise. And we're told that in the midst of their praise, and no doubt the jailer and all the other occupants of the jail are listening to this, as Paul and Silas are singing and praising God, we're told that a great earthquake took place. They're not uncommon in that part of the world. It shook the very foundations of the jail. The lights went out. Their fetters fell off, the doors flew open, the jailer came rushing in, assuming that his charges had escaped. We're told that he drew his sword in order to take his own life. If a Roman soldier or Roman jailer lost his charges, he would have to forfeit his own life. So he's prepared to do that. He's been disgraced. But Paul cries out from the darkness, don't be afraid. We haven't left. And immediately it dawns upon the jailer what had happened. This God of Paul, this God of Silas, had delivered his servants just as he had delivered the slave girl from her oppression. And we're told that he came in trembling, and he fell on his knees before Paul and Silas, and he asks what I call the most direct question in all of Scripture, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He's terrified of this God. This God who can cast out demons, who can triumph over Apollo. This God who can deliver his charges even from jail. What must I do to be saved? And that's when Paul, to his eternal credit, gives the most direct answer in all of Scripture. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your whole household. And we're told at that very hour, the jailer took him out. Paul and Silas, and dressed their wounds and cared for them and gave them something to eat. And he too became a follower of the way. Isn't it interesting? Paul lands here on the European continent. He comes to a city that has no real spiritual roots whatsoever. The first person who is converted is a woman, a dealer in purple cloth. The second convert is a slave girl who's demon-possessed. And the third convert is a jailer, a hard-bitten Roman soldier whose heart is softened and who believes in Jesus Christ. And he and his whole household, we're told, were baptized. That is the beginning of the church in Philippi. And I give you all that background because I want you to understand that's the genesis of the community to which Paul is writing in this epistle. It's 12 years later, and Paul is writing to these same people because this church, it had a very rocky beginning. It had a difficult beginning. It started off small. What a motley crew. 
but a church was established, a church that would go on to thrive for decades to come. So Paul is writing this letter to that church. Now, as I said, when Paul wrote letters, most of the time he was writing to address specific issues. These were action grams. When he wrote his letter to the Galatian churches, those were the churches that he had established with Barnabas on that first missionary journey, he was concerned because they had fallen into legalism. They were falling back into practices like circumcision and so forth. And so Paul wrote to them to say that the only thing that is required was the same thing that was required of the Philippian jailer, that they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They were going to be saved by faith, not by their works. So he writes to the Galatians and he says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Christ was crucified. In the case of the church in Corinth that Paul would establish, he's writing to that church two epistles because that church had really gotten off track. This was a wealthy, affluent culture, very much like 21st century America. These were people who were engaged in lawsuits. There was division within the community. There was sexual immorality within the community. The church in Corinth is so much like the church in America today, it's hard to believe that Paul wrote that letter thousands of years ago. But he writes to the church in Corinth, and he, and he tries to get them back on track because there were all kinds of problems. I say that the church in Corinth was Paul's problem child. So he was oftentimes writing to get them back on track, to correct some error that was taking place in the church, some heresy that had managed to creep into the life of the community. That's not the case with Philippians. There was no great error that we are aware of here in Philippi. Instead, what Paul is doing in Philippians is actually sending a thank you note. As I said, Paul wrote this letter from Rome. He was imprisoned in Rome, and he had been forgotten. Do you ever notice that that's often the way it is in life, that people, once you've experienced a tragedy, will gather around you, they'll flock to your aid, but as time goes by, life goes on, they get back to their lives, and you are left where you are. I've seen that so often when somebody dies, when you lose a loved one, it's been particularly hard during COVID because we can't have contact with people. But, but even when it's not in COVID, oftentimes what happens is people flock around you. They bring meals. They come and they visit. They're there for the funeral. They send flowers, all of those things. But about a month later, everybody has to get back to their own lives. But you're still stuck there. You're still grieving. Let that be a word of encouragement to us when it comes to ministering people who have lost loved ones. Go and visit them, yes, at the time of the loss, but also go back about a month or two later, because oftentimes that's when they need you the most. Well, that's the way it was for Paul. Here's Paul, this great champion of the faith. He's now imprisoned in Rome under house arrest, and everybody's gotten on with their lives, and they've forgotten about him. And for fact, we're told that when a representative from the church in Philippi went to find Paul in Rome, he couldn't even locate him. He had to search diligently in order to find out where Paul was. So here's this great man, this father in the faith, completely forgotten, except by the church in Philippi. They remembered Paul. They remembered what he had done for them, how he had been their father in the faith. And even though he's locked away, he's fettered, he's no longer able to travel throughout the world and preach the gospel, they haven't forgotten him and they send him a gift. And he refers to that in the first and fourth chapters of this letter. Now, being Paul, he's not just going to thank the Philippians. He's going to also offer them a word of encouragement. And that's the other thing that he does in this letter. He encourages them to stand firm in persecution because he knows it's difficult to be a Christian in that environment, in that kind of a city where they are marching out of step with everyone else around them. So Paul encourages them to stand firm in their persecution. He encourages them to remain united because divisions have a way of creeping into the Christian community, and we are much stronger when we are united. So Paul encourages them in unity. He cautions them against legalism. 
Sometimes when you are beleaguered, when you're persecuted and you're trying to stand firm, you can become legalistic about things. And Paul wanted to caution them to remain humble, to remain united, but not to become legalistic. And finally, he wants to commend to them two new companions, one that they'd already perhaps been introduced to, Timothy, and another, Epaphroditus. And he wants to encourage them to receive these men and allow them to minister amongst them. So that's the purpose of Paul's letter. We've got about 10 minutes. Let's just go ahead and jump in to the actual greeting in the letter, how this letter begins. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This letter begins in the customary way that letters begin in the first century. That's the way Paul begins most of his epistles. Normally, when you wrote a letter in the first century, the person who was sending the letter named himself at the very beginning. Now, when we write letters today, that's not the way it is. The recipient is named at the beginning, Dear Mary, and then you get to the end to see who actually signed it, the sender, Love John. In the ancient world, it wasn't like that. In the ancient world, the custom was that the sender established his credentials, who he was, and his purpose at the very beginning of the letter. And that's exactly what Paul does. He identifies himself, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So Paul is telling the Philippians, here we are, it's me, it's Paul, it's also Timothy, the servants of Christ Jesus. That's how Paul identifies himself. Now, in other places, he refers to himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus, but here he describes himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. And it's really interesting, the word that he uses here. The Greek is not really servant. The Greek word is doulos, and it literally translated means bond servant. We would probably translate that indentured servant or slave. So Paul is saying it's Paul and Timothy, bond servants, indentured servants, slaves, of Christ Jesus. Now, that's striking language. But what's even more striking is that Paul uses that exact same language to describe Christ. Keep your finger there in Philippians 1 and just turn to Philippians chapter 2 for a moment. Here, Paul is encouraging the Philippians as to how they should live. And he said, one way to know how you should live, one way to know how you should adopt the mind of Christ, which we said is one of the major themes of this epistle, is to remember the attitude of Christ. And this is what he says in chapter 2, verse 4. He said, let each one of you look not only to his own interests. How important that is. We oftentimes live in a culture where we look to our own interests. What's best for me? But Paul says, let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And the word there is doulos, bondservant. Jesus took the form of a slave. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, you who would be first must be last. He who would be the greatest among you must be the servant of all. That's what Jesus did at the Last Supper. He got down on his hands and his knees, and he washed the dirty feet of the disciples, the very men who in just a few hours would desert him in his hour of greatest need, one of whom would betray him, one of whom would deny him three times. That's how Paul describes himself here as a servant of Christ Jesus, as a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, slavery is very much on the minds of many people today here in Western culture and here in America. There's a great deal of debate about whether there should be reparation for slavery. You need to understand that in the ancient world, slavery was commonplace. And furthermore, Paul would say that in one sense, we are all slaves. 
Nobody is truly free. The only question is, whose slave are you? Paul describes himself as a slave of Christ Jesus. But if we were to ask him, Paul, what does it mean to be a slave of Christ Jesus? Paul would have said, well, you're a slave of Christ Jesus, you're, you're a slave of sin. But nobody, Paul would say, is truly free. Nobody can do anything that they want. In the ancient world, there were three ways that a person became a slave. You became a slave if you were born a slave. If your parents were slaves, you were born, you were automatically a slave. You could become a slave by conquest. If your people were conquered by another people, you automatically became slaves of the conquerors. The Jews in the first century were, for all intents and purposes, slaves of the Romans. And the third way that you could become a slave in the ancient world was by debt. If you could not pay your debts, you became a slave of the person to whom you were indebted. Now, it's interesting. Those three ways of becoming a slave in the ancient world correspond to the way that you and I are slaves to sin. And if you don't think you're a, sin, a slave to sin, just ask yourself this question. Do you always do the things you want to do? And that the way Paul described it? He says, the very things I want to do, I don't do. And the very things I hate, these are the things I find myself doing, a wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? We've all been there. We know what we ought to do, but so often we don't do it. And the very things we hate, lo and behold, we find ourselves doing them when we become so frustrated. Sometimes we even get to the point of despair. That's what it means to be a slave to sin. And we're slaves to sin in the same way that a person became a physical slave in the ancient world. We're born into it. We're all OS positive. We're born as slaves. First words children learn to say to their parents are no. So we're, we're, in, we're born into this. We become slaves by debt. Isn't that what we say every Sunday when we say the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our trespasses, unless you're a Presbyterian, in which they, case they say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's actually a better translation. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then we become slaves by conquests. David in Psalm 51 speaks of sin reigning over his life. But just as there were three ways to become a slave in the ancient world, there were three ways to become free in the ancient world. You could be liberated if your master granted you your freedom. You could become a slave if you earned your freedom. You did some great service for your master, saved his wife when the house was burning down, or you did some great service to the empire. And you could become a slave by paying for it. Sometimes slaves were hired out and they could actually earn a little bit of money in their free time. This was even true in 19th century America. And sometimes a slave could save up enough money to buy his own freedom. But Paul would say there's only one way to be delivered from bondage to sin. And that is if someone comes along and pays the price for your liberty. And he knew that is exactly what Jesus Christ had done for him. Jesus Christ had paid the price. His own life. That's what he's talking about in Philippians chapter 2. Who became a slave. Though he was God Almighty, the King of the universe, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a slave, became obedient to death, even death upon the cross. And there he paid for all mankind that full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world, thereby setting us free. Not free to do everything we want, but free to do the things that up to this point we were incapable of doing when we were in bondage to sin. We're free to actually follow God, to become His servant. And it is His service, Paul said, that is a service of perfect freedom. See, that's the irony. In serving the world, we actually find ourselves enslaved. In serving Christ, we actually find ourselves liberated. And so that's why Paul describes himself in that way. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, but it is a service, he says, of perfect 
freedom. So that's who Paul is. Who are the people to whom he's writing? Well, they're the Philippians, but he describes them in a very specific way. He says, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. To the saints. The people to whom he's writing there in Philippi are saints, and they're not saints simply because they'd remembered him when nobody else had. And they weren't saints simply because they were generous when no one else had been. They were saints, why? Because they were in Christ Jesus. That's the key. If you ask many people today, what does it mean to be a saint? They'll probably tell you, well, a saint is a person who does some extraordinary things. They do great things for God, and as a consequence of doing great things for God, whether it's performing a miracle or some great sacrifice, whatever it is, they have achieved or they have been granted this exalted status of a saint. But you need to understand that in the New Testament, the word saint and the word Christian are the same. It's the same idea. The people in Philippi were Christians because they were in Christ. Because they were in Christ, they were saints. The word saint literally means to be set apart. That's what it means, to be set apart for a purpose. It means to be sanctified. That's what the word sanctified means, to made holy, to be set apart for a purpose. In Jesus' great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he prays for his disciples. And he says, Father, sanctify them. Sanctify them in the truth. What he's saying is set them apart. Set them apart for a holy purpose. That's what Christians are called to be. We are called to be set apart for a purpose, to live differently from the world, but to also serve in a different way, to serve a different master. That's what it means to be a saint. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. Certainly, even the saints, the ones we call the saints, were not perfect. Paul was by no means perfect. Peter was by no means perfect. Thomas was by no means perfect. But while they weren't perfect, they were redeemed. They had been bought with a price, and they no longer served self. They served another master. They had been set apart for a purpose. If you ever want to see a real live saint, all you have to do is come to church and look around because they're everywhere. And that's what Paul is referring to here. He's writing to those people to Lydia, to that Philippian jailer, to that young girl who had been delivered from the demon, and he's calling them saints. That's why I love that little song we sing on All Saints Day. You can meet them at shops or on trains or at tea, for the saints of God are folks just like me. It's true. That's what it means to be a saint. And these are the people that Paul is addressing in this epistle and wishing them grace and peace. We'll take a look at the rest of these um, two verses, the rest of it, um, next week, because there are a couple of other terms there. Paul addresses the saints there in Philippi, but he also addresses the overseers and the deacons. And he greets them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he greets them in a very particular way. And we want to take a look at that as well, because it also lays the foundation for what we're going to do in the rest of the letter. So this is the beginning of Paul's great epistle to the Philippians, an appropriate letter for us, particularly at this time in the life of the world. And perhaps while we ourselves are under house arrest. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the life of the Apostle Paul, for his traveling companions on this second missionary journey, Silas and Timothy. We thank you for Paul's willingness to go into Europe. We thank you that you prevented him from going north or south, but kept him going west until he stepped foot in Europe and went to this leading city of Macedonia, Philippi, where he preached the gospel, and a little church was started, a church that would shine like a beacon in that dark world. Grant that we may be like that. The church is not made of perfect people. It was a motley crew there in Philippi. It's a motley crew here at St. Philip's. But it is your pleasure to use people 
humble people, set them apart for a holy purpose, that they may be your servants and saints in the world. Grant that it may be true of us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, God bless you, and we'll see you around campus very soon. Everybody stay safe and healthy, and we'll come back together again, God willing, next week and continue our study of Philippians.